Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. I just finished writing the next edition of the Gothic Retrospective series that's going on on Patreon. Cool. If you are not familiar, dear listener, that is a series of writing that Sarah is doing for our $10 backers on patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Give us a tease, Sarah. What's the next entry about? Uh, So I've talked about how Frankenstein uh, as a novel is kind of a unique novel in how Mary Shelley brings together uh, the gothic literary genre and romanticism. Hmm. So this retrospective is looking at what gothic and romantic literary movements involved and how Mary Shelley brings them in um, and what that kind of means. Cool. So yeah, going to be pretty exciting, I think. And uh, I'm excited to hear what everyone thinks of it when I post it. Absolutely. How are you today, Ben? I'm doing pretty well, Sarah. Yeah, I don't know as I have much in the way to report, but having an all right day. Oh, that's good. It's kind of smoky and overcast today uh, because there's some wildfires raging across British Columbia and Washington. The world. The the world, but I mean, the smoke in particular is Mm. coming from the west coast but you know we're we're staving off environmental despair by talking about horror movies so what are we watching today ben today sarah we are watching the vampire Hmm. from 1957 directed by paul landras okay and so this is another one of those movies that like i had never heard of before doing this show and uh I'm now I'm kind of looking forward to it. Okay, that's kind of cool. Do you think it's going to be in a similar vein to uh, that movie that was just called The Werewolf? Yes. Oh, because yes, that was I like do. a unique take or at least addition to the werewolf canon, I guess. Uh, so now, now I'm stoked. Yeah, this movie is sort of considered to be like a companion piece to the werewolf, even though it's made by a completely different group of people. Um, but like it has a similar take in that it's a sort of science-based take on vampires in the same way that like the werewolf was like a science-based take on werewolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, tell us about it. So this is an indie production and it's from producers Arthur Gardner and Jules Levy. Now, Arthur Gardner was born Arthur Goldberg, but when he started his career as an actor at Universal at age 18. He changed his name to kind of um, obscure his Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. During World War II, he served in the motion picture unit making propaganda films. And while in the motion picture unit, he met Jules V. Levy and Arnold Levin. And the three men formed the Levy Gardner Levin Production Company which would go on to produce classic TV shows like The Rifleman. Uh, But before they did that, they produced some cheap horror sci-fi flicks in the 1950s, like everybody else. (laughs) Gardner passed away in 2014 at the age of 104. Whoa, 104? Yeah, that's a long run. Are you sure he wasn't a vampire? And that this is a biopic? Yes. Okay. Because, I mean... He wouldn't have passed away at 104 otherwise. (laughs) The script for The Vampire was written by Pat Fielder, uh, who was born Patricia Penny. Uh, But she went by Pat in order to, like, hide her gender on her credits. Mm -hmm. Uh, She studied theater arts at UCLA and got her start as a production assistant before rising up to become a writer. Uh, We've had women writers on the show before but i feel like it's been a while 
since we've had one? A while, and they have always been few and far between. For sure. In addition to some B-movies in the 1950s, she would go on to write for TV shows like The Rifleman and Starsky and Hutch. Oh, Starsky and Hutch. She passed away in 2018 at age 91. Good long run. The director of The Vampire, as I mentioned earlier, is Paul Landris, who was born in New York in 1912 and started out in the film industry as an editor in the late 1930s before becoming a director in the late 1940s. After directing a number of B-movies, he went on to become a television director in the 1960s, working on shows like The Lone Ranger, Maverick, and Flipper. I imagine Flipper was pretty tough to work on. Because, like, it's weekly, Mm -hmm. but it's also with animals. And kids. And kids. So it's just like a headache all around. Oh, for sure. The movie's lead actor is John Beale, who was born James Blydung. He was the son of a department store owner who wanted his son to have a career in business. Uh, But at college, he got involved with the school's humor and drama clubs and went into (laughs) acting instead. Uh, He appeared on Broadway starting in 1933 and then Hollywood starting in 1934. Um, The height of his film career was probably the mid to late 30s. In World War II, he acted in propaganda films as part of the motion picture unit. And after the war... His film career sort of transitioned into like B-movies or supporting parts. By the 1960s, he was mostly appearing on television, although he did remain continually active on stage until his death in 1993. Always can count on improv to take students out of business. Hmm. Our lead actress here is Colleen Gray, who was born Doris Bernice Jensen in 1922. She dreamed of being an actress, so she traveled to LA after studying drama at university. After appearing in some plays, she won a contract at 20th Century Fox in 1944. She appeared in Red River with John Wayne and in Nightmare Alley with Tyrone Power. However, Fox dropped her from her contract in 1950. So she spent the 50s appearing in indie films like Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Oh. As well as numerous television appearances in the 60s and 70s. She passed away in 2015 at age 92. Uh, do you know why Fox dropped her? Um, because she was in a musical, I believe, that they put a bunch of money into that was a big flop. Oh, okay. Well, at least it wasn't one of those, like, read between the lines as to why she was dropped. Mm. Apparently, she, like, was kind of disenchanted with movie acting. She had dreamed of being, like, a big glamorous film star and then found out that acting was, like, a lot more work with, like, a lot longer hours than she had thought it would be. Sure. Um, so there's sort of that aspect of it, too. Actor Kenneth Toby played the lead in The Thing from Another World in 1951. He was like the the main Air Force captain guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And since then, he's appeared in a large number of films such as The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, It Came from Beneath the Sea, and even The Search for Bridie Murphy. Uh, He plays like a sheriff in this film. And like for years, his stock and trade was playing like military characters or police or like other authority figures in B movies and on TV. This would end up leading to kind of like a second career for him as an older man getting cast in movies directed by like baby boomers who had grown up seeing his like 1950s stuff on TV all the time. And this would include films like airplane where he was cast alongside like a bunch of like, 1950s like i play the army captain type guys right like that's what leslie nielsen was and a bunch of the other guys in airplane um he became a favorite of director joe dante so he appears in like both gremlins movies he's also on an episode of star trek deep space nine called shadow play where he's an old man on a planet who like fakes the rest of his village as a bunch of holograms after they're killed by the dominion 
Oh, yeah. Uh, and then his final film was a B-movie, like 50s B-movie parody movie called The Naked Monster. And he passed away in 2002. Okay. Who is he in Airplane? He's like one of the air traffic controllers. Okay. Actor Dabs Greer was another character actor with a long history in B-movies and on TV. Uh, We've seen him before in minor roles in films like House of Wax and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So generally speaking, like everyone involved in making this movie kind of has the same career arc of like made a bunch of B-movies in the 50s, went on to do a bunch of TV in the 60s and 70s, retired in the 80s, lived to their 90s. That's not a bad way to go. Sure. The Vampire was shot in six days for $115,000. Super cheap. Super cheap, super quick. The music is by Gerald Freed, who is known for scoring the early films of Stanley Kubrick. And for his television scores in the 1960s, Uh, He was one of the composers on Mission Impossible, as well as one of the composers on the original Star Trek. Ooh, Uh, trombone. He's best known uh, of all his Star Trek episodes for being the composer of Amok Time, uh, which means that he composed the famous Star Trek fight music. Absolutely amazing. We have a hero in our midst, Ben. (laughs) The Vampire was released by United Artists on June 14th, 1957 in San Francisco on a double bill with the giant monster movie, The Monster That Challenged the World, uh, which was from the same producers and writer. Was it made like the week after this one? Probably. (laughs) The double bill didn't get, as far as I can learn, screening like outside of San Francisco. Like it just played in this one city. So... Hey, that counts as a theatrical release. Right, exactly. And most people who have seen these movies ended up seeing them on late night horror movie shows on TV. Um, Both films, however, are critically well regarded. Oh. And considered to be forgotten gems of the era. I saw a lot of good stuff being said about both of them. Okay. Well, are we watching the other one? No, it is a, it's a giant monster movie. Yeah. Yeah. The Vampire was released on DVD by MGM and on Blu-ray by Shout Factory. And it is on our YouTube playlist. Fantastic. Well, folks, if you want to uh, watch along and perhaps be as surprised as we are with the quality of this film, uh, you can head over to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com to find our YouTube playlist. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Vampire from 1957, directed by Paul Landres. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Vampire from 1957, directed by Paul Landres. Benjamin, first thoughts. Holy shit, this was good, actually. This was so fun. I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, which is nice because uh, last week was not good. (laughs) What was last week? The Man Without a Body. Holy shit, that was only a week ago. (laughs) um yeah the vampire is like pretty good it's made even better with its score Mm, you really like the music yeah i've always really liked the music of original series yeah like most of star trek music i enjoy so let's talk about the story of this one which honestly is like i think pretty unique yes i mean you can sort of pry it apart and be like, 
oh, we've seen something like that here and we've seen something like that there. But I think the way that this movie puts everything together is really different. Yeah. Um, so we start with a teen. <laughs> <laughs> it's just notable, Ben. Um, so we start with a teen. Uh, he's coming up to make a delivery for a Dr. Campbell. Um, and when he goes into Dr. Campbell's lab, uh, Dr. Campbell is like ill and, you know, gets the teen to go for uh, the town doctor, Dr. Paul Beecher. Uh, Paul makes it to Campbell uh, just as Campbell dies. Uh, now, Campbell's been doing some experiments. He has all these lab animals here. Um, and Beecher doesn't really know what has been going on. Uh, but Campbell's like, I found the secret. It's these pills, blah, as he dies and gives uh, this bottle of pills to uh, Dr. Paul Beecher. So Paul makes it back to his office. But uh, I guess he gets these migraines every so often, and one's really bothering him now. He has a, a preteen daughter named Betsy, uh, who he asks her to bring him his migraine pills that are in his coat pocket. So she goes, she grabs one, and gives it to him. And uh, this is just in time for him to see a Marion Wilkins, uh, who has been having some heart trouble, um, but is just a little rattled right now because... You know, the whole town's heard of the death of Dr. Campbell. And Paul's headache is just getting so bad that he's like, you know what, Marion, come back tomorrow morning. I, I can't see you right now. And he goes to bed. The next morning, Paul wakes up hearing that Marion is sick in bed. He gets a call from her maid saying she's not coming out of bed. So he goes there and she seems to have these two puncture wounds on her neck and she reacts fearfully to Paul, like saying, like, no, stay away from me. But it's it's me, Dr. Beecher. And she's like, I know, stay away. And she actually dies of a heart attack. Now, this seems like a little weird. And Paul's thinking about, like, I'm not sure why she would have been reacting strangely. Um, my missing pen was in her room. This is all quite strange. And he puts his hands in his pockets and pulls out his migraine pills and Campbell's pills. And he's like, oh no. Now, Betsy doesn't remember which pill she got him, uh, which is, you know, fair. You're 12. Like, you're not going to pay attention to what pills you gave your dad. Um, so he's like, uh, let's figure out more about what these pills are. So he goes to Campbell's lab to do some digging around. Now, Dr. Campbell, he is in this small town from the nearby university, from like the nearby big town. Because he's died, uh, some people from the university who were also part of his research program are now coming out to his lab to follow up. Um, one of these people is a Dr. Will Beaumont, who Paul actually knows. They went to med school together, but Beaumont went off to do psychology instead of um, general medicine. Yeah. General practitioner medicine. Yeah. With him, Beaumont has brought uh, Henry, who um, is his assistant and is actually going to be taking over Campbell's research here. Now, they arrive to Campbell's laboratory at the same time as Paul, and they're like, oh, hey, nice to see you again, Paul. Uh, this is Henry. By the way, Henry wears sunglasses all the time because of a traumatic event that I will explain in detail while he's in the room to my long-lost friend, Paul. Beaumont is weird. Yeah, Beaumont doesn't... Understand boundaries. Doctor-patient confidentiality. Yeah. Like, he just, like, explains people's, like, whole deals when he, like, introduces them to someone. Yeah, you know how some people would be like, and this is my husband, Ben, we do a podcast together. No, he would do it in the way of, like... And this is Henry. He wears sunglasses because he witnessed his mother being burned alive as a child. And due to the trauma, he has very bad light sensitivity. Yeah, that's exactly like, what I happens. I literally just met him. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what happens. But anyway, so Will and Henry are here to learn uh, about what Campbell has been up to. Now, Paul doesn't say anything about the pills that he was given. He's just trying to, like, figure out what's going on. Now, when they get there, all of the animal test subjects have mysteriously died, except for the cage of vampire bats. 
Dun, dun, dun. Now, Henry begins to examine the uh, dead animals, and he's like, ah, yes, it was total cellular disintegration. And Paul's like, what? Um, Apparently, this total cellular disintegration occurred because it had been a full 24 hours since these animals had last received a pill that would stop them from dying. And this pill also is designed to regress animal minds to a primitive state and then reverse that process to advance the brain further. The pill doesn't do all of that. It's step one of the research project is can we regress minds? Yeah. As part of like, okay, if we can regress minds, then we can... Learn how to reverse the process. Yeah, and and, and advance them later. Which I feel like... That's sort of like saying like, okay, I want to design a plane. So first I'm going to design an excavator to go deep underground. And once I've figured out how to do that, designing a plane will be a simple reversal of that process. Well, it's kind of like, oh, to teach my kid how to walk, I'm going to like push them backwards. Yeah, it's like... And then they'll figure out how to walk forward. Like I understand the principle of like, okay, if they're messing around with brain chemistry... Like, if you know one, you'll know the other. But why not just start with the thing you're trying to do? You know? So, the process by which of instigating the regress is done through a viral infection spread through the blood that was developed out of these vampire bats. So that night, Henry is working late in the lab. Um, because he's like a very like singular focused kind of guy. And um, because of the trauma. <laughs> or just because he's a scientist. He hasn't adjusted well to society. That's true. Uh, Will explicitly states that. Mm-hmm. Um, While Henry's in the room. <laughs> well, Henry And Henry. Yeah. Okay. Like manners my guy yeah he's lucky that henry doesn't seem to care yeah uh and we see that henry gets attacked by some kind of like man creature (laughs) we've been doing this a long time yes yes we have so henry is next to die now because it was uh like a brawl sheriff buck is on the case (laughs) the sheriff buck that's that's his first name right Yes. What's his full name? I don't fucking know. Okie dokie. Donnelly. Wow, I don't remember them ever saying that. No, they just call him Buck because him and Paul are friends. Mm-hmm. So Buck Buck is on the case. Uh, now, he's been involved since the beginning, but I haven't brought him up because who cares? Um, but because it's clear that this is like a homicide and not just like heart attacks or something, uh, he has brought in a medical examiner from the big city to do an autopsy on Henry. And this is where they find this blood disease. And they're like, yeah, so this blood disease caused total cellular disintegration. And that's what killed Henry. Henry also has the two puncture wounds on his neck. And that leads Buck into looking into exhuming Marion's body to see if she also had this disease. Meanwhile, Paul is getting more anxious. He keeps having these blackouts. Um, And it seems like he can't help but take these pills at 11 p.m. every night. Now, because it seems like he can't help himself, he asks his nurse, Carol, to help um, basically keep him company and make sure I don't take these pills. Unfortunately, during their dinner, Paul gets pulled away to go do a surgery, um, which he does. And uh, on his way back into town, uh, he changes. Now, he ends up stalking Carol, or rather we see like he changes and then we see that something stalking Carol um, and chasing her into her house in a sort of semi-cat people scene. Um, She manages to get indoors. And so this creature ends up killing this little old lady named Carrie, who we had met earlier in the film. When Paul awakes the next morning in bed, um, he 
is now fully convinced that he's doing the murders because he recalls every morning the person's face. Um, so it's almost like he can remember doing harm to these people. So he's like, okay, I got to go to Will and get a second opinion. He's been keeping meticulous notes on what's been happening to himself. So he goes to Will to give him the evidence. Now, again, Will is a psychologist. So he believes that Paul is actually just hallucinating. He's been working too hard, that sort of thing. But you know what? We'll stick together and I'll keep you from taking the pills. And I'll show you that this is all just in your head. Meanwhile, Marion is exhumed and they open the casket and see skull face. I, so this was a complete surprise because I was expecting like her to rise from the grave or something in like a a Lucy situation from Dracula. Uh, But that's not what happens. What happens is they open the coffin and it's like a skeleton with googly eyes and a wig because it's been like total cellular disintegration for her entire body. It's just, <laughs> it's just a skull with eyeballs. Yeah. They, they look like googly eyes because that, you know, you can see the whole eye, but like, it's just that her eyes and her hair have not disintegrated. Yeah. Yeah. And her bones. Yeah. But it's not what you're expecting when no. they open it. And of course the score goes, bah, bah, bah. Yeah, like yeah. it's amazing. Loved it. Quite um, gruesome. Yes, also quite gruesome. Did not love it. It was horrifying. (laughs) Did not enjoy it at all. Sarah loves that gruesome. (laughs) We cut back to Paul and Will, and Paul is getting very anxious. He's like, no, I need need these pills. Like, give me the pills. And Will's like, no, like, calm down. It'll be fine. And then Paul changes and transforms in front of Will into this strange creature he just gets real ugly he um has kind of a slouchy face matted hair um his bottom lip looks swollen kind of like you know what happens when you get punched in the face um and his eye sockets are droopy he looks like lon cheney jr if you left him out in the sun for too long and his like skin got all like leathery and wrinkly so he looks like Lon Chaney in the 70s if yeah. uh, Lon Chaney was like a beach babe. Yeah, he <laughs> I, I'll talk about this later. But to me, he looks like someone who is like a lifelong drinker. Yes. When he transforms. Yes. Now, what's surprising in, in this instance, because he egos and kills Will is it's clear that he has some kind of rational thought. It's not the total like primitive regression that we've seen in other movies where he just becomes animalistic because he drags Will's body into the incinerator to dispose of the evidence, which is, yeah, is it's an interesting thing to me. Um, anyway, the next morning, Paul knows what he did. So he decides, okay, I'm going to send my daughter Betsy, who is still in the movie, away to her Aunt Sally's place in the big city, and then writes out his last will and testament and plans to kill himself. Carol, who, you know, has been recovering from this scare of being stalked, uh, comes into work and actually interrupts Paul and what he's doing. Um, They have a little bit of a fight, and it's like that adrenaline ends up changing him into this creature again and so we get a bit of a chase now buck was already on his way to paul's office because they had gone to the lab to you know investigate stuff they saw the incinerator was on and handy dandy audio recorder had been recording the entire murder including will going paul no paul wait Um, So we get a chase scene of Buck chasing Paul, chasing Carol. Paul and Buck get into a fight, and the sergeant that was with Buck shoots Paul and ends up killing him. Uh, And then, of course, Paul reverts back to himself um, from the creature he was. And that is the end. Yeah. So um, I think the thing I'll just point out... Mm. 
this synopsis was really hard to do because like many indie low budget B movies, there's a lot of like back and forth and, you know, this location to that location and extraneous characters, etc. But this movie does it really well Mm -hmm. because of the, I think honestly, because of the writing, they find interesting ways to pad out time that isn't just and now we go to this location and now we go back to that location they have the characters do real interactions um paul sees multiple patients and they deliver exposition in interesting ways that keeps your attention yeah like the characters aren't just explaining things they should already know back to each other over and over Mm -hmm. um i totally agree that the script is very good i also think the other thing lifting this movie up is i think the direction is really good yes yeah the direction the cinematography everything is really coming together here um but tell me more about the direction Well, I mean, so what you see in this movie is there's a really good use of camera, framing, performance, pace, tension. Um, All of this comes together really impressively for a movie shot in six days for hardly any money. Yeah, I want to know who they had as like, is it the PA that handles the schedule? Like First AD. Yeah, the first AD. Uh, I hope they got paid well Mm. because like, damn, six days. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Landres creates really interesting like compositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uses deep focus. He uses camera movement and all these other like cinematic techniques to keep the film feeling alive. Um, like I noticed a lot of scenes where he would put a character foreground, midground, background with like a telephoto lens with deep focus. Like he's fucking Orson Welles or Akira <laughs> Kurosawa up in here. Um, but then like another bit that I I noticed was like Paul gives like a speech to Beaumont shortly before he transforms and kills him. And in that speech, he's, he's talking about like how he needs the pills and stuff. And the camera is like slowly tracking in on Paul, Mm -hmm. which is not something that you would do if you weren't, doing it on purpose i know that seems like a weird thing to say but it's something where like if you were just like oh yeah we're just gonna film this shot you would just lock off the camera because it's a really subtle move in it's not like a big dramatic thing it's a very slow move in and i know from the fact that i've done that camera move in a movie that i've made that that's hard to do Mm. because the entire time you're moving a camera closer to someone really slowly like that, you need to be adjusting focus the entire time at the same rate. That's right. So it's a really hard shot to pull off and it's something that the audience probably won't even notice consciously, but unconsciously it gives that speech in that moment more power as we slowly get closer Mm -hmm. to that character as they're bearing their soul to us. It rises the intensity. Right of the speech and of that moment as well. Yeah. Ironically, despite the background of the film's producers, um, this film does not exhibit the army training film style that like pervades the cheap films of this era. Yeah. I would have expected this to be like a B movie from a a standard studio, you know, like people who have regular work and can show that they know what they're doing because they have that regular work, not just an indie production. Yeah, this this movie looks like it was made by people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So I was really, really impressed with the filmmaking on display here. Um, you know, this movie understands editing and yes. tension and suspense and pace. And as I kind of hinted at the beginning, like all of that is elevated further with the score yeah the score is really fantastic if you are like a big star trek fan i think you will recognize gerald freed's style like there's there's stuff where like you're listening to it and you're like oh that kind of sounds like spock's theme or that kind of sounds like whatever right Mm -hmm. um which is was kind of fun uh but yeah it's really good stuff yeah it does a really good job of elevating the emotions that are going on without it taking focus away or feeling like the score is doing the heavy lifting where like you know you're in a scene and the actors are like 
brah, I'm scary. And like the other actress is like, oh no. And then the music's going (laughs) to like try and convince you that what's happening is exciting. No, they're meeting each other halfway Mm -hmm. and just wrapping it completely with a bow on top. Yeah. And as you pointed out, the script is really good. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie has a great concept, story, execution, using vampirism as like a base to create a whole new take on the idea of like the scientifically created vampire, which we've seen like a couple times, but yeah. not never like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allows the script to explore like an allegory for addiction. Yeah. Like that's what this movie is about. This movie's about someone struggling with addiction and it's pretty brilliant. Like, although it's explicitly pill addiction in the story, I think the allegory extends to alcoholism, given the kind of symptoms Paul Beecher exhibits, the way that um, John Beals performs the character. And then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, particularly the design of the makeup, which to me looks like the sort of facial features you'd expect in a lifelong drinker. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Yet that was also where the movie... Where, where I, I wasn't sure about the movie. Hmm. Um, because why a vampire when the way that Paul transforms uh-huh. is much more akin to werewolf or the Jekyll and Hyde thing? Yes. Jekyll and Hyde is like nearly explicitly about alcoholism. Uh-huh. Um, listen to our episodes on those <laughs> movies to find out more. Um Especially because, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking of the Frederick March one where he just gets progressively uglier as he transforms and it changes out of his control. And that's ultimately what happens to Paul. Yeah, there's there's definitely some Jekyll Hyde influence here for sure. Yeah. And so it was just like, why? Why a vampire? It, It just is like, did they go with a vampire because they didn't want it to just blend in with like the standard generic monster movie? So I think, I think you're right. Like, and, and it's hard not to think of werewolves because honestly, it feels like, like John Beale gives a great performance, but it does feel like they told him to emulate Lon Chaney Jr. When he is getting frantic, mm-hmm. knowing that he has a guilty conscience mm-hmm. is very much akin to Chaney's Larry Talbot. Yeah. Now, that being said, the alcoholism subtext in the wolfman movies is unintentional yes it exists because cheney was an alcoholic and that comes through in the performance and informs the performance and how you think of it and understand it i think the reason vampires got used here is because although the movie kind of like gets away from this um by so my my sort of issue with the movie script my only issue is that the mechanics of the transformation and what's going on are overly complicated and we never really get a full explanation. I'll get to that in a second once I finish saying that, like, I think what happened here is they were like, you know, the writer, she was, I think, thinking, I want to do a movie about addiction and struggling with that. And, you know, I'm going to do it through this horror B-movie thing because, like, I'm not Billy Wilder. I'm Pat Fielder. Like, I'm not going to write the script to, like, the Academy Award Best Picture winning movie. So, like, what I can get hired on are these cheesy B-movies. So let's use those cheesy B-movies to to talk about something, right? And I think if you're thinking about classic horror monsters that you want to do a story about addiction on, vampire makes sense. Because mm-hmm. a vampire needs blood to live, and goes out every night to get their fix in a way that like werewolves don't like they always portrayed Cheney's Wolfman as like, Oh, he has to kill every night. But like, does he, does he right? Like there's nothing where it's like, Oh, he'll die if he doesn't or something. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not like a vampire. So a vampire I think makes sense to portray as an addict. The thing about it is that he, it's not the blood he's addicted to. And ultimately, the science behind this science vampire is a little bit confused. I don't know if I like or dislike this. Yeah. Because Campbell dies really early on. 
and no one in the movie ever figures out what the fuck's actually happening. Like, Will, Dr. Beaumont, he looks at all of Campbell's notes, but there's like, he can't, he can sort of figure it out, but the notes are out of order, and there's always like a big question mark of like, there's a missing factor here that we don't understand. You know, Henry figures out some stuff and is on like a good trail when uh, Paul kills him. Um, Buck is figuring things out, you know, as a detective and talking to a medical examiner, but he's a fucking moron. Yeah. Um, terrible detective. Very bad at being a detective. Which is like, he's sheriff. So how bad are every other cop in this town? Sure. So we never really get a full explanation. Paul never really figures out what's going on either. There are pieces to the puzzle, but there's never like a scene where someone sits you down and like lays them out. And... The movie has that universal style ending where once Paul's dead, like nobody cares. Yeah. I think the fact that no one explains anything is a bit of a strength for yes. it because it's still like completely out of your control. And I do think it's interesting how like the waters get muddied further when Paul kills Will without mm-hmm. taking the pills y- yes and so he literally can't get at the pills yet he transforms and then he kills will and it's like so then the cause and effect here that you were thinking that the pills turn you into this thing is not the case here yeah and like i don't know if that's because they're like following that jekyll hyde formula where jekyll starts to like transform without the thing mm-hmm. towards the end of the movie or what but I, I, so I like that things remain a mystery because it's, it's like, there are, it, there are some things you'll just never know, you know, the characters never figure anything out because nobody in this movie fucking tells each other anything. Yeah. Like I was frustrated by how incompetent Buck is, but I did realize that like, this is a horror movie. Your authority figures kind of need to be incompetent because if they know what's going on, this problem would have been fixed real fucking early. But like it takes forever for anyone to like admit anything to each other. Like Buck has suspicions about Marion like really early on. And he's like, medical examiner. Yes. Could. Ah, never mind. And then like lets the medical examiner leave. And then like two scenes later, he's like, "Mm, I better call that medical examiner back. So here's from what I can understand. This is my understanding of what's going on. But there are some big question marks here. Yeah. So I'll try to lay it out. So Campbell is a scientist, probably like a biochemist, who's been hired by the university's psychology department because the psychology department wants to research can a human mind be like regressed to an earlier form and then brought back, right? Or can a mind, because he's he's working on animal testing to start, right? So Campbell experiments on these animals and he extracts something from vampire bats that he is using to put in the pills. Henry says the pills, so, so Campbell says the pills are like the key to the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? And he's figured it out and then he dies. Henry says the pills are a control serum that are being administered to the animals. The animals, if they don't get the control serum, they have the like capillary disintegration and they die. Will says to Paul that the point of the pills was supposed to be that the pills are what regresses you to the earlier state, the instinctual state but that Campbell had said there was a problem with the pills, which is that they're habit-forming. We later find out that what's causing the capillary destruction is a blood disease that Paul is passing on to the victims when he, he sucks... He himself is immune. Right, he himself is immune, He so he has it, and he's passing it on to the victims because he's doing the vampire thing and biting their throats and like sucking out some blood. And when that happens, his saliva passes the thing into their bloodstream and they die of it. And then Paul is taking the pills every 24 hours and, you know, and he's addicted to them. So then we find out that Campbell was working on this virus that he had. I, I, I couldn't, 
quite, I don't quite remember if he created it or if he extracted it from the vampire bats. Extracted. Right. So the question becomes, for Campbell, from Campbell's point of view, was the virus on purpose or was it an accident? Was it an intentional part of the experiment or not? And if so, like, why? So I think what's happened is that whatever regression thing he needed for the animals he extracted from the vampire bats and then maybe the bats had the virus well here's why i'm like bringing in werewolfery Mm. because that's always been mythologically speaking uh wolves with rabies yes vampire bats carry rabies as well well any bat can carry them but um so i'm like okay well how did how did Campbell die? Yeah, that's one thing like, we never find out. Yeah, so what I'm wondering is if, like, he got infected from the bats with, like, rabies or whatever, and the pills were supposed to keep him alive, but he died before he could use it. So then how did the pills affect... Right? Yeah, how did so, the pills affect Paul? Uh, unless it was kind of all in his head with the, like, canthropy psychological point of view of sure. like no i'm turning into a wolf but it's my mind doing it so so yeah so campbell dies and at first we're just told it's a heart attack and we're told that like he has regular heart troubles that like you know he's seen beecher before about them then like marion dies and at first marion's like really worried she's on edge because she has heart troubles and so if campbell died maybe she'll die and then we think that she died of a heart attack, but then we find out it's from the capillary thing, but we never go back to find out if Campbell died from the capillary thing, Mm -hmm. the destruction. So here's the thing. When Will is describing to Paul how the pills cause the regression, he says it's that they basically draw blood out of the brain so that like the animals go into like a weird frenzy or something. Mm -hmm. And you know, Paul says like, well, that would normally cause fainting. And he's like, yeah, I don't know how Campbell did it or whatever. That's the only thing that connects the pills to blood. Because the thing is, is like, what's weird is Paul is doing the vampire thing and sucking blood from people's throats, but he doesn't like have fangs. So how is he making the puncture wounds? But even if we ignore that, what seems to me to be happening Paul is taking the pills. The pills are turning him into the monster because they're causing the regression. And then because his brain is light on blood, he's like seeking people out for their blood, sucking their blood. And then that's passing on this disease. So the only way he could have gotten the disease because like Campbell doesn't bite him or something is from the pills. So that's why I think whatever was extracted from the bats to make the pills work that's like drawing blood from their brains. I guess it's the blood sucking property of bats that Campbell turned into a <laughs> pill, um, carried the disease like unintentionally mm-hmm. and it's an unintentional thing. And now if the animals don't get the pills regularly, they die of the disease, which doesn't really make sense if the pills are what gave them the disease. And then, so it's like the pills are addictive, but they'll, you'll also die if you stop having them. Except then, like, when Paul's afraid that he's addicted to him, like, him and Will's plan is, like, okay, we're going to break you of the addiction by not giving you the pills at 11. But wouldn't, shouldn't that kill him? And then, like, he transforms anyway. Is the pills are what making him transform? Or is it the lack of pills are what making him transform? There's just yeah. a lot of, thi- what I'm trying to get across is there's a lot of stuff going on. And the mechanics of it are never really clear because the characters themselves never quite know. And that's the only part of the script that I'm kind of unsatisfied with. Because Mm -hmm. if I ever wanted a scene at the end of a movie where like the scientist or the detective or someone like goes and here's what was happening the whole time. I kind of wanted it here and we didn't get it. It's just like, well, we shot Paul. Yeah. The other thing that isn't really followed up that I was a little disappointed about is uh, after Henry is killed, the vampire bats go missing from their cage. Oh, that's right. And that never goes anywhere. Yeah. And like, okay, I don't know where this is set. I'm presuming San Francisco-esque area. Sure. Um, I don't think vampire bats live there. No. 
And the thing about vampire bats is they tend to like bite, lick blood and leave Mm -hmm. and you don't always notice it. Same way that you don't always notice when you're bit by a mosquito. Sure. So this disease is going to spread. This is going to be like a zombie apocalypse situation, but that's not followed up. The other thing with Henry is I feel like when they introduce Henry, he's supposed to be like a bit of a red herring at first because he's like this super weird guy who like barely talks and is always like very taciturn and wears sunglasses inside because he's sensitive to light and and knows what's going on with the experiment. And there's one moment where um, they're like, oh, so the animals died of this like capillary thing. And the camera is like close on Henry's face and he's like yes the disease won't escape me now and he's like saying this with a smile yeah and it's like are you hunting the virus right there's Henry is (laughs) Is, one of did the virus kill your mom I feel like what's going on with Henry is like Henry is honestly like one of my favorite performances in the movie because he's like an amazingly unique character for the very short amount of screen time he has. Like this guy could have just been like some eggheaded like university assistant TA student type, right? Who's just like, ah, Dr. Beaumont, yeah, I'll examine the lab. <laughs> oh, well, looks like it's a disease with capillary. <laughs> and then like get killed. But instead he's like fucking like, mystery man like with his like he looks like he's a character from fucking twin peaks or some shit (laughs) and he's super fascinating and i don't know how much of this is the script or how much of it is like the actor playing him being like i have like five lines i am making the most of them you are going to remember me in this movie i think it's the script Hmm. because everyone every character has some thing unique about them yeah like uh carrie the old woman who dies is hard of hearing yes um and then is like walking her dog betsy like is always constantly like doing like piano lessons or dance lessons or whatever because she can't decide whether she wants to be a concert pianist or a ballet dancer but also because teachers are paying their bills to the doctor in lessons for his daughter right and so but it's like right like so yeah so all the characters have like these weird little quirks and details and things which are part of what you were saying earlier about like a script that's like bringing these characters alive yeah and but it's not like oh everyone has like their thing in this town what's your thing right (laughs) Um, I don't know. It's just integrated really well. Yeah. It's just the script giving the characters character. Yeah. Right. Which is just surprising for a movie of this type where we're used to being like, I am doctor and I am professor and I am general and I'm reporter and I'm the girl. And those are the characters. (laughs) Right. I think the other performances in the movie are pretty spot on as well. Yeah. No one sucks. There's a good child actor in this movie? Yeah, surprising. Um, And uh, even Carol is good. She's a good character. She's she's not just the damsel. She's not just the nurse. Like, it feels like there is a character there. Yeah, she has, like, this interesting, like, well-rounded personality where, like, she wants to help Paul and be a good friend to him, but it's not, like, a romantic thing. Mm -hmm. And, like, she's interested in Betsy and, you know, like, all these things. And... Yeah, like the detective is dumb, but that seems to be the script. It's like the actor is playing him well. Yeah. Right? Um, By the way, uh, so I looked up who Kenneth Toby played in Airplane. Uh, sure. He plays Buck. Um, he's the uh, redheaded old airplane controller. Right. In Airplane. Um, I just wanted to confirm if he was the dude who's like, it's a bad day to stop smoking. No, no, no. That's a different famous 1950s actor. <laughs> But I don't know these things, Ben. So in case the audience was curious, I I solved the mystery for you. For sure. Dr. Beaumont is really weird, but um, Dabs Greer's performance makes him very likable. Yeah, I don't know what it is, though. Well, it's like he makes him very soft-spoken and very, like, personable and pleasant. And he doesn't come across as, like, a big asshole. He doesn't, 
like he's weird because he's going to remark on everybody's trauma, but he's not like made to look like a weird quack. Like the movie doesn't seem to be like suspicious of therapists. Like he genuinely wants to help Paul and he's doing it in like this very calm way. Yeah. He handles Paul really well. Right. Where it's like, okay, Paul, take your hand off my arm. Like I'm just going to put these in this drawer. No, I'm, there's a key. If we need them, we can get at them, but I'm just going to put them away. Like he, he's, he's so helpful he he clearly wants to help people and that makes it like sad when he dies like you don't want to see him get killed and then his body shoved into the incinerator right um yeah oh yeah so that's i i wanted to bring up like it's weird not weird weird it's interesting how paul is sort of rational mm. Right? Like, he goes looking for Carol specifically. Right. And is, like, trying to turn the doorknob, not just, like, barrel through like a rabbit, rabid animal. Right. Um, He destroys Will's body mm-hmm. because he knows that Buck is closing in mm-hmm. um, and doesn't want to be found out. Like, it's... It's interesting, and I because we've brought up addiction and alcoholism, mm. it reminds me of the way that people, when they're in the midst of battling addiction, will be like, no, it's, I don't know what I'm doing. It's just the substance. Um, right. I'm not responsible for my actions. Yeah. And it's like, you are. Yeah, I mean, because you're, you're still rational in that moment. Exactly. Um, which is why it's also really interesting to me that... Paul changes without the pills Mm. in that moment with Will. And it's like, this is just who you are now. Right. And there's so much tragedy in that too. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a really interesting movie to pry apart. Um, And not in the usual way of like, uh, well, the the, the, the the tombstones are made of cardboard. Nah, nah, nah. You know <laughs> Which I mean, I mean like, they are, but um, it's also not in the same way of like Cult of the Cobra, where there was interesting things there, but they weren't doing them on purpose. Right. Here you get the feeling that the writer is trying to do stuff on purpose, even if she like lets a few loose ends fall by the wayside, you know, like it's not as tight as it could be. Things aren't tied up in a nice little bow, mm-hmm. but... Ultimately, I think that this movie is definitely like more than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. The movie goes for it is the mm-hmm. thing, right? Like there's a lot of deaths. There's the, a skeleton lady. There's like <laughs> gore. There's um, it's the movie feels like it's trying to frighten you, you know, or at least put you on the edge of your seat with like suspense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these guys have clearly seen Val Luton movies. Yeah. Um, this movie feels like it's actually trying to provoke an emotional response in you instead of like the, like going through the motions feel that a lot of these cheap horror B movies have. Mm-hmm. Well, where would you want to rank this? I have a very narrow range. My range is pretty wide. Oh, so Yes, you you go first. Yeah, let's see if your range falls within mine. So I looked for the werewolf uh, as my starting point. That's down at 43. I think this is better than the werewolf. Um, I think the werewolf was interesting and like had some pretty wild elements like the way the mad scientists are in that movie and like (laughs) the like you know, trigger happy sheriff. And so I think this is better than the werewolf. Okay. Um, although the werewolf has those interesting elements, I think I enjoyed watching this more in the moment. Like I got a bigger thrill out of this movie. I think this movie's more exciting. I think mm-hmm. this movie's doing a better job at what it's doing. And like you said, is doing a better job of like masking the, like we have three locations thing. Right. So, then looking above the werewolf we've got a lot of very good movies because we're in like the top 50 here the other movie i wanted to look at with comparing this was the wolfman Mm -hmm. i think this might be better than the wolfman where is that 22 and the reason why i say it might be better than the wolfman is that the wolfman is the best of the lawrence talbot movies But so much of what you think of when you think of Larry Talbot comes from the sequels, like the continual tragedy of like 
no, please, you gotta help me. I'm gonna transform. This movie does in one movie what the Wolfman movies do over the course of a series. Sure. Like, this movie achieves the level of sympathy that you have for Larry after, like, three movies of watching him go through the same shit. (laughs) Um, And I think that the intentional allegory for addiction here is better than the unintentional subtext in the Wolfman movies. Um, So I think this could go above Wolfman. I don't think it goes higher than that because I think Fairman Maria's allegory is much braver. And then like above that, like murders in the zoos depiction of um, spousal violence is like way more disturbing and, and so on. So my range is 22 to 43. Okay. So I also started at The Werewolf and I was torn Mm. because that creature makes sense. Fair. But as you said, like everything else in The Vampire is really well done. Everything with The Werewolf is on location and it's done really well with being on location. Mm -hmm. Um, All of the people of the town, everyone... It's it's a really well done movie, hence why it's so high up. So I was like, well, I want to like see how the conversation goes about how we feel about the the muddiness around the way the vampire works in in this film. So I feel like I'm okay with going above the werewolf, but not too far above the werewolf is things like House of Wax and like the White Reindeer. And while those movies aren't necessarily about, like, the subtext of being, like, about something as serious as addiction, The White Reindeer is really, really well done. It's very tight. Everything really makes sense, even though it's, like, a supernatural thing. So I I don't know how I feel about going beyond that. Um, Between White Reindeer at 40 and The Werewolf at 43, we have House of Wax and The Queen of Spades. Um, and so this is the area I was kind of looking. Got it. As long as it goes above the leopard man, I'm pretty happy, uh, which is down at 51. So it is, (laughs) um, I think I'm okay. Like you're right about how good some of these movies above this are. Um, and since like 43 was my floor, but like, because I had a range, like that means like I could see it going anywhere kind of in there. Right. So I think I'm okay with putting this above the werewolf but below the queen of spades okay yeah um because the queen of spades what's interesting is like the climax of that movie where like the horror is hitting the nail right into the board is so quiet Mm. and is so different from this where this is like a classic like monster chasing the girl ending in gunshots yeah yeah um and that's so like unique and powerful uh, the, the quieter one is so more unique and, and powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I feel very comfortable with this spot. Okay, cool. So entering the list at our new number 43 is the vampire from 1957 directed by Paul Landris. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many other films that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed and listen to us however you like. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a rating or a review. Uh, Reviews and star ratings on Apple Podcasts help the show get featured in algorithms more, which helps more people find the show. You can cut out the middleman of the algorithm and help people find the show yourself by telling people about the show directly. Share us on Twitter, share us on Tumblr, share us on Facebook if you're still there. Um, Or, you know, talk about us in person. Tell your friends, your coworkers, your family, uh, the guy at the bus stop with you, whatevs. Uh, Let people know about our podcast. If you really enjoy what we're doing here and want to help support us, uh, you can do so monetarily 
by going to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to weekly bonus audio. Patrons at the $10 level are currently getting access to monthly written content from Sarah, the Gothic retrospective series. Because we have hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we are going to be doing our second bonus episode at the end of the month, the last Saturday of the month, on the 1999 Mummy movie starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz and a bunch of other really attractive people. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so you can expect to find the Mummy horror-adjacent bonus episode in your RSS feed inbox on the last Saturday of the month, July 31st. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are watching one of the most important films in the history of cinema. What? That's right. It might be a little movie, a forgotten movie, but it is a movie that changed the course of cinema itself. It is. I was a teenage werewolf. Teenagers! I, I don't know why I'm like this. <laughs> Here come the teens. <laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> Surfing. Cowabunga. <laughs> Hot rods. Pizza. I'm just describing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> that's, that's your one touchstone for what teenagers are like? Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.